Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Do you remember the time, years ago now, when we used to take photographs and have them printed and carefully placed in albums to return to and touch and feel and put on a shelf where we would pull them out over and over again? It seems like ancient history now that most of us have photographs cataloging our every single day on our mobile devices. These older photographs played a pivotal role in our annual celebrations of the past, whether that was one's birth, anniversary, service as a veteran, or other family milestone. One such photograph that was formative for me was of my grandmother and grandfather after his service in World War II. The photograph has been widely absorbed in my family for decades, and I thought it told me all I needed to know about his service. It was only recently, when Nick and I were searching for family names for our son, that I spent more time with this and many other photos. I started asking my dad questions about the photo and was surprised to discover that I'd gotten the story all wrong. Horace McGill, my dad's father, served in the 3rd Division, 7th Infantry, and saw action in World War II in North Africa, Italy, and France. He was shot in the back of his skull by a sniper in France. And while he survived, his brother, who was also shot by a sniper, did not make it. After his injury, my grandfather was sent to Newton D. Baker Army Hospital in Martinsburg, West Virginia, where he underwent a couple dozen surgeries to reconstruct his face and adjust to life with a single eye. My grandmother moved to Martinsburg, West Virginia, and found a job close to his base as a nurse's assistant so she could be close with him as he recovered. The photograph of note shows the two of them just outside the hospital, half of his face covered in bandages, just before they travel home to Tennessee. He's in full military dress, and my grandmother has on her traveling suit, as one did in those days. In my narrative, my dad and my uncle were at home, eagerly awaiting their arrival. But I was surprised to learn this past year that my dad and my uncle had not yet been born. I knew the story of his injury, and I just assumed that one could not have gone on to build a full life in the wake of such a traumatic event. But he did. Horace suffered all the ensuing mental complications you might imagine come with such an injury. The ways in which my grandfather's injury permeated my dad's childhood and the last 15 years of his life were profound. Yet they all carried on, and we never talk about it. When we talk of veterans, my grandfather and others in our family, their legacy is unequivocally celebrated for very, very good reason. And I suspect that for most families, the full story is much more complicated than a single photograph can capture. Celebrating what has passed can make us feel good. And... It bears worth remembering that these celebrations would do well to be complicated. This week marked our annual celebration of Veterans Day, which followed on the heels of All Saints. And in each case, I wonder how you treat the opportunity to revisit these celebrations. 
How do you treat the opportunity to celebrate All Saints and Veterans Day? I'd like to put before you that one worthy reason to pause to remember is to make space to go deeper. It is to have an opportunity to go below the surface and acknowledge all that has taken shape. The danger in simply celebrating a photograph or who we remember someone to be in a photograph is that our memory can be shaped by the photograph itself. For example, in the photograph of my grandmother and grandfather, they are glowing smiles from ear to ear. And yet there was little about their married and parental lives that was not hard or troubled. The way that my family talks about my grandfather's injury, I just assumed it was short-lived in the time that my dad had with him. But in fact, it was the entirety of his experience with his father. The photo and the assumptions I made about the story completely changed the story itself. Our readings this morning invite us to look below the surface in particularly pointed ways. In 1 Samuel, we are given Hannah's story and the text of her song. A scholarly summary states, this is the story of Hannah praying at the temple in Shiloh. Hannah is one of Elkaniah's two wives, and the other is Penaniah. By all appearances, Hannah's situation is hopeless. She wants a child but cannot conceive and is consequently the object of Penaniah's ongoing scorn. And yet, with striking audacity, Hannah goes into the temple and prays silently and fervently. So fervently, in fact, that Eli, the attending priest, thinks she is drunk and rebukes her. Hannah's response is poised, lucid, and insistent. And Eli, humbled by his mistake, joins his priestly prayer to hers. Shortly thereafter, Hannah conceives and gives birth to Samuel, having silently vowed to dedicate him to God. Hannah gives birth to the first of the kingly line who will come to Israel. It is a powerful song of loss and eventually hope. Mary's song in Luke's gospel, which we are much more familiar with, is mirrored on this text from Hannah's song. The story of Jesus' sacrificial... You cannot have the story of Samuel's kingship without Hannah's struggles. And likewise, the story of Jesus' sacrificial gift is only partial without Mary's loss and heartache. It is hopeful, life-altering news that God has for us, but it is not without struggle. Interwoven into God's divine reversals are stories of lament and loss and upheaval. The gospel narrative from Mark, likewise, encourages us to look below the surface. As Jesus emerges from Herod's temple, his disciples comment on its grandiosity. The temple was the literal and figurative foundation for Jewish life. It was seen as the access point, the only access point to God. Historians of the time tell us that prior to its destruction, Herod's temple dominated the landscape for miles and miles around. Herod expanded upon the previous ruler's temple, determined to impress other rulers, and he succeeded. But there's a further paradox folded into this structure The tabernacle, the room with the Holy of Holies, remained completely intact. 
All that was changed was the extravagance that surrounded it. 90% of the temple was just fat. For Jesus to suggest that this significant foundation would endure, would not endure, would have been devastating and puzzling. It took over 400 years to build. Surely, God would not allow such a thing to happen. This raised more questions than it answered. Where would God be found if not in the temple? But then something really interesting happens here in the text. Jesus moves those gathered at the temple to the Mount of Olives, where they might gain some perspective. You know what happens when you climb up on a mountain and you can see all around. From the entrance, the temple seems to be all there is. But sitting beyond the grounds, with an ability to see the horizon, one realizes that the temple is not as all-encompassing as it seemed. It is massive, but it is finite. Only when the temple was destroyed did the work of reconnecting with God begin again in a deeper way. The shape of our worship reminds us of the ways in which God desires to do more than get a glimpse at the surface. God doesn't just look at a photograph. God looks at that which is left out of the frame and doesn't survive in the stories that become family lore. God looks at the whole picture and does not fear that which is below the surface. God is not awed by our finest temples our most be- or our most beautiful structures. As we approach God in worship every Sunday, we are invited to bring before God all that we have had time to examine and the many, many things that still dwell below the surface unexamined. In this season full of remembrances, keep in mind that we intentionally offer it all to God. An assurance that God has seen and will see every part of us and still declare us beloved. Amen.